0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Leica CEO and Kubo in the Two Strings director, Travis Knight. Hello once again, this is Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm a little uh, throaty today. I've got that kind of sultry edge to my voice I get once every couple of months or so. Yeah, oh, the ladies love it. Not entirely sure why. I'm not sure if my body's deciding it's getting ill or not right now. It's just making me sound kind of sexy. So, <laughs>
1: we'll work with
0: it. Oh, Ben. <laughs> Compose yourself. And we will uh, soldier on with another episode of the Squiggly Animation Podcast.
1: I've got to uh, counterbalance your sexy voice with just garbage. <laughs>
0: We'll, we'll do a trade-off. <laughs> Next episode, I'll do the garbage and you can be the sexy one.
1: Well, that'd make a nice change. So what's been going on? There's a brand new Moana trailer, uh, which is nice to see. It's one of those trailers that explains a little bit more about the story, introduces you to the characters a little bit more, and then has a joke about a bottom.
0: Moana, also known as Viola.
1: Yeah. it's. It, uh, why was that? I mean, we saw it at Annecy, didn't we? And, and they explained that... In France and Germany, it's it's called Viana, uh, And it's not just a, a a translation, it's that Moana is, I don't know, is it the name of something over there?
0: It's either a brand or it means something rude or something, you know. There's, there's always some strange reason. Um, yeah. Or maybe it's just to be difficult. I forget which one it was. It was either Ron or John. We'd keep correcting the other because they were presenting it in Annecy. Yeah. So whenever one would refer to it as Moana, the other one would be like, no, Viana. <laughs> uh, by the end of the presentation, you could tell whichever one was getting it wrong, one says smack the other
1: one. <laughs> <laughs> They're very difficult to tell apart, the two, aren't they?
0: I was a few rows back.
1: Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I had a um, in my book. You know, I was, I was taking notes, and I basically caricatured Bert and Ernie of them's <laughs> like, like a, you know, a horizontal oval The other one's a vertical oval with a beard That's, that's how I did it Who was the one who kept uh, correcting the other one? I think that was Ron Clements Was correcting right. John Musker
0: But I remember what was kind of interesting Was they would show clips in English mm. But for the purpose of, I guess, those clips Or possibly, I don't know what But they had the characters refer to the character as Vianna mm. Even though it was the English language version so I guess they had to do like two English versions for whatever purpose that is
1: so it must be a legal thing then
0: I guess so I remember like when we saw Monsters U in Annecy a few years before because Mike or Sully one of them's called something completely different in French (laughs) yeah but they didn't change the English dialogue yeah so you you have one guy, you know, say, hey, Mike, and then the French is, you know, salut, Bob. Yes, yeah, yeah. Or whatever he's called in France. Yeah. I don't know why they needed to go the extra mile and actually do an English version where she's called
1: Vianna as well. They did it with Zootopia, Zootropolis, Zoomania, Zoo... Mania, Zoo uh, they did it with that, didn't they? Every single...
0: Oh, did they actually change the name of the place in
1: yeah. each version? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so when we're watching... We, I mean. I still call it Zootopia, even though the English title should be Zootropolis. It's, uh, it's a nice work there from the uh, Disney marketing team. But um, yeah, it, it's it was daft, but inside the actual film, I think, I've seen Termit call they referred to it as Zootropolis.
0: I just looked up for like the purposes of anal fact-checking what Mike is actually called in the French Monsters, Inc., and he is called Bob. Well, there you go. Going out on a limb there. <laughs> so yeah, Norman, what do you think of this one?
1: I think it looks pretty good. I really like the music in it. The music really really drove the trailer. Um it seems to be quite a well we know from 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 the Annecy presentation that music is such a big thing in this film. I think it's it's taken on the same role as uh something like the Lion King or you know when when they get a big musician in to give the film its kind of flavor. I think they've done the mm-hmm. same here. Uh and it's it's quite clear in the trailer that that's the kind of thing that you're going to you're going to get. Uh, The Rock wasn't as irritating as I thought it would be, you know he seems quite kind of, you you don't really tell it's The Rock, the girl who plays Moana is instantly engaging, there's not Mm. an ounce of kind of Hollywood uh, or like Broadway acting up, she just seems like a very grounded, realistic, uh, there's an honesty to her voice and I like that, I think you know that she sounds really really good. Yeah, it
0: looks, uh, I remember, I because uh, I saw the trailer and I'm sort of remembering as I'm watching it, the bits and pieces from the presentation. And it's, it's going to be an interesting one to see, because there's always that slight difference between what the experience of the film is versus what the setup of the trailers and the sort of pre-release clips tend to be. Mm-hmm. And there's usually one rather sort of crucial story element that isn't put across. So I'm sort of curious to see what that's going to be. And I think that, you know, as far as, like, the tropes, like, the goofy sidekick thing with the bird... Yeah, yeah. It treads that sort of line of being, from what I've seen, like, really, really obnoxious to rather sort of
1: charming. And it seems to sort of be more on the charming side, which is a relief. We were promised a pig, though, Ben, weren't we? There's supposed to be a pig in it as well. Ah, and have they they jettisoned the pig? (laughs) Looks like it. I mean, it must be a pretty grisly first act.
0: Well there's a pig in the poster here. Yeah.
1: There's a little pig in the boat with this the poster that's in
0: the article that uh, Dwayne Johnson himself tweeted out. I guess he has like the the exclusivity for releasing all the teasers and tidbits. Maybe that was like a contract clause. Yeah. So yeah, the pig is is I guess at some point going to show up or they've neglected to remove him from their marketing campaign.
1: <laughs> I think one thing that's uh, that I'm looking forward to him showing up and showing off a little bit more is uh, Eric Goldberg's uh, Fantastic work on the tattoos. Mm. That was, I mean, such a great treat. In honesty, when they showed us that uh, Eric Goldberg, as we all know from uh, the animator of uh, the Genie and director of Pocahontas, and you know, I don't know why I'm explaining Eric Goldberg. <laughs> he's, he's been on the podcast. Listen, listen back. Um, he, he's designed uh, the tattoos of uh, the Rock's character, and I'm going to keep calling them the Rock because. I'm sure he wants to be called Dwayne Johnson.
0: I don't know. If you had the the option to be called Dwayne or The Rock, wouldn't you go with (laughs) The Rock?
1: So Eric Goldberg has animated the tattoos, and it is classic. You know, it's like the genie on Aladdin-style animation. Loads of squash and stretch, loads of kind of personality and strong poses and, you know, designed to this graphic tattoo style And that looks absolutely superb. So I'm looking forward to him showing that off. All the animation fans will just start dribbling everywhere. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be amazing.
0: Well, there was always a slight lament because so many of these films would have such lovely end credit sequences
1: Mm. that would
0: usually embrace, you know, the 2D animation. And there was always a sort of slight bit of sweetness to that in the sense that, oh, if only something like that could have been incorporated more in the, the body of the film. So this has been, from what I can tell, a really good vehicle for that to happen to get some really nice 2D, bold character stuff and, you know, the design work in there and actually have it be sort of a crucial character and plot point. I'm assuming it might be a completely negligible and frivolous plot point. <laughs> Time will tell.
1: I'm looking forward to seeing more from Moana. I think uh, it should be good. It's, I don't know, summer frozen, I suppose.
0: One thing I remember finding a little bit unsettling was the water animation, which while very technically cool it's a sort of thing they've done where they've given water this sort of personality hmm. and water like the ocean basically is like her mate like it'll help her out going back to when she was an infant and they would play together frolic on the beach and so the sequence they showed i remember it's like water kind of forms as this big tongue yeah and kind of like <laughs> licks her it's this sort of odd sort of almost feral kind of playful relationship that they have it's sort of a bit like the slime in ghostbusters when it's about to like kill you, and it sort of takes the form of like a giant slug or something,
1: it reminded me more of the abyss. Oh yeah, <laughs> it, it it reminded me a little bit more of that in its way. But uh, yeah, very very kind of odd.
0: Well, it's sort of like well, as soon as water stops being like starts behaving like water, it kind of just looks like lube. <laughs> or gel, I guess. Which I guess is why it's such a popular sort of choice for like water effects and stop motion, as it will stay in place. Yeah. And then you know it's animated to look like it's moving like water. But when you do it the other way, when you get that water look and just sort of give it this gelatinous bulk, it just sort of feels like a little bit odd.
1: Uh, just you just reminded me of the thing I always forget, and I, and I, and I never want to be taken out at the moment. But whenever I see a film and a stop motion characters crying and it's all emotional, I <laughs> it's. It's Lube dribbling down the face. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, Moana's, I think it's out in December in the UK. I think we've got to wait that long, Ben. So, uh, December the 2nd, it will be hitting cinemas.
0: Oh, we'll be here before we know it.
1: Yeah, the other trailers that are out, have you seen the new Trolls trailer, Ben? Is that, that's right up your alley, isn't it? How well do you know me.
0: <laughs> you know, if remarkably, I don't think I've seen the latest one. Really? I saw one a couple of months ago, like a teaser. But shall I? Is it worth me giving it a look? Um, will it enchant me, Stephen? Well, I hope so. Justin Timberlake movie. Oh, well, now I'm sold. There you go.
2: Yeah. Hi, I'm Anna Kendrick. And I'm Justin Timberlake. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's delightful. Oh, they they said their names, but it was the other name. Oh. <laughs> oh, well, that's maybe raised the bar a bit too high, though. I don't know if the film
1: itself will be able to follow through. Yeah, save some chuckles, Ben. I'll just pick my nose a bit while you... Uh, Mm-hmm. The trailer too slow. Oh snap!
0: <coughs> this is a story. this
1: already within
0: thirty seconds, <laughs> and I'm not even talking about the film, but the trailer. Within thirty seconds, encapsulates everything I despise about trailers. Mm. Firstly, the music. Let's let's address that. We were talking about how nice the music was in the Moana trailer. This is the kind of music designed to to sicken the spirit. Yeah. Uh, and yes, the other thing, the setup, the gag bit in the trailer, where the gag is so fucking funny that the music has to stop. <laughs> but, but we have to be at like a second of like basking in the brilliance of the joke. Like, oh, high five, too slow.
1: And then, oh, snap.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes it will cut to like a scene from a completely different part of the movie where it's one of the characters going, say what?
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: It's f***ing drivel. I, <laughs> I, f- I just find it. A, a, it's an affront as an editor, and I can imagine that the people who made the film probably find that annoying too. Yeah, yeah. like seeing your film just remixed.
1: That's it, isn't it? You, you, people don't realise when they're watching these that they're done to a formula and they're not done by DreamWorks. All the footage will be sent on to a trailer uh, company, and they have this kind of formula where. They'll make sure that in the Moana trailer, there's a joke about a bottom. And they'll make sure in uh, the Trolls trailer that a character has a wee joke in it. And it's that kind of... They have to hit those certain beats. It's absolutely tedious. Because on one hand, you've got DreamWorks clearly breathing down the neck of this trailer company going, look, we want this trailer to be more like an appeal So we've got Justin Timberlake and Anna Kendrick at the beginning. And then you can do all your fart gags and your wacky characters and and make it look like we've put no effort into this film. (laughs) And then we want a bit of Justin Timberlake and Anna Kendrick talking about the heart of the movie. And then we'll go into a song.
0: Yeah, this is the bit that's playing now. Oh, right. Like it's all gone like sort of black and white. He's singing the the somber love ballad, I guess.
1: It's True Colors. Because the film's about colours. Oh, God. It's, yeah. it's
0: going on forever. I think it's probably shorter than the actual film. <laughs> Aye. And so I guess, well, there's a sort of vague connection to the old dolls. Like, they sort of have the big hair. Very vague. And I think, to me, this represents the area of the animation universe that I have the least interest toward. Mm. With stuff like Sausage Party kind of coming a close second or maybe this is second to that i don't know either very very generic colorful family fare versus very very weak obvious satire mm. using you know the same kind of degree of irritatingness <laughs> to pull it off
1: i think that the both audiences have to partake in something in order to get the full appreciation of the film the kids watching trolls would probably have you know enough pick and mix to make their eyeballs bleed and I'm sure to make Sausage Party work, you have to be under the influence of something.
0: Yeah, or have just never actually like had sex <laughs> with a, a live-action human being. Like I say, I can't really speak about the quality of the film. I've been surprised in the past mm. with how sort of, if not good, tolerable films can be compared to their trailers. When I eventually catch them on like Film 4 or whatever. But I'm not going to be first in line to see this one. Let's just say that. Mm. But what you the point you just made about the, the formula of trailers and how that can make or break a film, I think is actually something to bear in mind when considering a rather disappointing audience engagement with Kubo in The Two Strings. Mm. And having seen the film, there's actually plenty of moments in it of levity to keep it from being too, like, ponderous or morose or dramatic or tragic. You could edit together a trailer that was very much in this mold. You could really focus on the, the music tie-ins. You could really sort of focus on, you know, the comedy beats and then sort of use all the drama for, like, a little portion of the trailer and then just bring things back up again. What they actually did was they made a trailer that actually rather... Fairly reflected the quality and the tone of the film, mm. and sort of respected the vision of the director and the work of the animators and all of that. And I, I wonder if that, if that didn't contribute to it just not getting bums on seats. If maybe if they had <laughs> used trickery and deception <laughs> to mis sell the movie as a, another generic piece of crap, then it w- more people would have gone to see it.
1: That's that. It's an interesting thought because on the other side, and on, on the other foot we're taking the piss out of trolls and it might be amazing it's you know don't judge a book by its cover i think is the 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 phrase here that's good you made that up yeah i i i you're going to have to write that one down because i'm sure people will be you'll hear somebody else use it i guarantee ben <laughs> um but yeah don't judge a book by its cover don't judge a film by its trailer it, it, it kind of that fits doesn't it
0: no, I, I guess I think that's fair enough. I think that you know a lot of films that I, I like can be incredibly mismarketed, and I, I won't have seen the marketing campaign, but I'll look back and think, "Wow, that must have really confused a lot of people." Coen mm. brothers' films very rarely have trailers that accurately reflect what the films are like. Like when you think of like how stuff like The Big Lebowski or Burn After Reading or even Fargo were sort of marketed as quite broad comedies, almost. Yeah. And the actual result is something that's a, it's not really played for laughs in the way that the trailer would suggest. Mm-hmm. It's more thoughtful and usually quite sort of philosophical and quiet in places. The best one, actually, is quite recent. I'm a huge, as I've mentioned on here before, I'm a huge fan of Todd Salone's, and his new film is called Wiener Dog, uh, which is a sort of reference to his first big film, which character was who was bullied, and she was called Wiener Dog. And she's her character is in this film it's a sort of not quite sequel but the through line of this film is the dashand that's passed around from owner to owner it's one of the most depressing <laughs> and like you know troubling disquieting films of the year not nearly the most depressing film he's ever made uh, it's actually quite light by his own standards. But as far as, you know, his usual kind of tropes, which are absolute condemnations of human weakness and selfishness and the cruelty and unfairness of life, it's it's right up there. Mm. But it's marketed as this cute film of an adduction being passed around from owner to owner. And so all of these, like, you know, Midwest robes are going to see this film, and they're absolutely f***ing aghast. Yeah, yeah. It's probably it may have changed now, but like a couple of months ago, the critical, you know, tomato meter was like, you know, 90 something percent. And the audience tomato meter was like 10 because <laughs> <laughs> they just went in and got given a completely different film. Yeah. You know, my girlfriend adores Dachshunds and I adore Todd Salone. So this was like a perfect date night. (laughs) But let's watch some other films of his first, because I got to be straight with you. If it's the Todd Salones that I know, that dog's a f***ing (laughs) goner. Like he is not making it to the credits. In a way, looking at the marketing, which is very kind of cutesy and some of the cinemas kind of got in on it, like the watershed here. Uh, which were at this week for encounters. Like, they, they did this very sort of cutesy thing. Like, they put up a photo album of, like, you know, oh, such-and-such such brought in their dachshund to see Wiener Dog and all these cute little photos of the dogs buying the ticket and all mm. of that, like, completely inconsistent with the tone of the film. <laughs> and I don't know if maybe they hadn't actually seen the film when they did that, or maybe they, they would be kind of, like, you know, dark themselves. But the cutesiness of the marketing campaign makes absolutely perfect sense. If you know the guy, Mm. then it's like a a joke in and of itself that couldn't possibly be a cutesy film like this. But of course, if you go into that with no context, then you really have been completely missold a film. And I do think that, you know, animation suffers from that quite frequently. Like, it's not even necessarily about the quality of the film. It's the kind of film you're going to get. Or the story, like I remember when I finally saw um, The Princess and the Frog and... um, what was the other one? Uh, Brave. Oh, yeah. Both trailers that I had seen didn't remotely go into what the actual story was, mm-hmm. which in both cases were that old Disney thing of like, and oh, we're animals now and we're lost in the woods. Yeah. So I was a little let down, I think, in, in both cases. Like, maybe I wouldn't have been if the trailer had just sort of been upfront about that. Certainly, Brave, I thought was going to be a lot more about like, the film had a real sort of reputation. As being something that was about sort of empowerment, whereas it was really more about like a mum and her daughter coming to terms.
1: Yeah, it was about a stroppy teenager. Yeah, it wasn't about like you know, I, I'm I'm a single woman, leave me alone. It was you know, it was like oh god, my mum's a bear. That's, <laughs> that's what it was in the end.
0: Gonna like, clean the shit out of her fur again.
1: <laughs> it was an odd one, wasn't it? You know, it's but in in that case when we're looking towards Leica and we're looking that this film hasn't really done that well at the box office, doesn't really matter because Leica will keep running, pardon the phrase, on Nike money forever. So Leica can basically do what they want uh, and continue making films for themselves. I get the feeling that when you watch a Leica film, it's not been through the test audience that a Disney film... Or, I'm going out on a limb here, A DreamWorks film would have gone through, and that means that they wouldn't have sat them down in front of children of all ages. And if a child kind, you know, they've all got like stuff stuck to the head where they can read their brain waves, and they're watching somebody's there with a checkboard watching the pupils dilate and stuff as they're watching the film. And it's like, ah, oh, what are what are the, what are the chi- children flinched a bit when a character was on screen? Order five thousand million dolls of that character. You know, it's put more in the film. I know that some films have been destroyed by that in 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 ways that they think, oh, let's add more of that character because it tested well during this. You know, this this this, this sort of test audience screening. Do you think that Leica do that? Do you think they need to do that? Do you think that Leica, uh it would ruin what they do?
0: Well, I don't. I can't really say with any authority. It could very well be that they do submit their films for those kinds of appraisals and feedback sessions, and just simply pay no heed to them. Yeah. Or maybe some of them have been. I mean, I do think that something like the Box Trolls probably wouldn't have been released as is if it had been given that kind of scrutiny. Yeah. Because a major criticism of the box trolls from parents and children was there was an uncompromising ugliness to it <laughs> that they, they really stuck the, to their guns about. And I think that that probably worked against it in hindsight. I don't think any attempts to like homogenize it or make it cuter would have made it a better film at all. Mm. I think it's, it was perfect for what it is. Sometimes you can have a nice film that's just all about you know gross things and it'll find its audience. But that audience won't necessarily be that big if you need the kind of like, you know, figures and and sales and, you know, box office returns that a Disney film does. You can afford to make that kind of risk. And like, you know, they always have that kind of fallback of their particular and I suppose rather unique funding circumstances to carry on making films. What I kind of remember reading, and I may, this may be misremembered, was that, that had carried them through four films, the the Nike sort of foundation upon which they're built. And I think four was going to be the cutoff point. Right. So I, I think this was meant to be the one that was would hopefully turn things around and kind of very firmly establish their future hmm. to continue to make films like this. Uh, they may very well... I know they're going to be doing more stuff beyond just feature films from this point on. And maybe through that, they'll be able to generate additional streams of income to continue to finance feature film work. But I think that the days of them just sort of coasting on what has probably been a rather significant pile of capital, I think they may have
1: come to an end.
0: But I just don't know. I, I Like I say, I forget where I read that, or if I'm getting my facts confused.
1: Well, if that is the case, that would be a great shame. If if we, well, we've kind of come into the conclusion here that Leica are doing films for Leica's sake, and when they meet the perfect audience the audience that appreciates them for what they are not because they've been duped into going to the cinemas because uh they want to see the wacky sidekick or any of this kind of stuff when the you know the film has been made with a with a passion uh and with a kind of artistic drive throughout throughout without any compromise meets that audience that's a beautiful thing and to to have that taken away it's, it's a bit sad really isn't it
0: yeah but it's, it's also the way the world works. That's capitalism, baby! Cruel as it is. <laughs> we need a revolution.
1: Yeah. And then once once all the bloody... Everyone's dead, we can start making lovely films.
0: Puppet shows.
1: <laughs>
0: by Torchlight. That's the future.
1: So tell me more about the actual film, Ben. Well, have you not seen it yet? I have not seen it, no. You have to sell it to me. Well, I uh, I will say...
0: Try and see it in the cinema. Yeah, I don't know if necessarily you'd need to see it in 3D. I'm not sure if it was just the kind of screening I saw it at. It was a press screening, so it wasn't like a particularly big cinema. I didn't find the stereoscopy that necessary or satisfying. And some of the instances, like at the beginning, there's like this CG ocean storm. And the ocean against the
1: beach and stuff like that didn't seem to sort of match up that well. I read, you, I read your review. Mm -hmm. Do they actually use CG in this film? Like, because when they did water in uh, the box strolls, I seem to remember they got, like, the glass from a shower Mm -hmm. and rubbed them up against each other to make... And and even the fire, they used a similar technique. Everything's sort of as close to, you know, people doing stuff as possible without, you know, using CG. Obviously, they use CG for the faces. Um, In in effect, we are watching... uh, The film gets made twice, but... For the ocean at the beginning, is that CG? It's CG
0: informed by stop-motion techniques. Right. There are some quite good write-ups as to how exactly they did it. This is Oliver Jones, who was the rigging supervisor. Whether science or innovation, to us it's worth the risk to go out on a limb. It was with that up-for-a-challenge mentality that Lycens tackled the prologue sequence, which finds Cubo's mother navigating a rickety raft on a roiling sea. Water has long been a best noir for stop-motion animation, one best avoided. But this sequence was pivotal to the narrative, blah, 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 blah. Very floral production notes they have here.
1: Um, Skip to the end. How would, we,
0: <laughs> how would we create and animate the water and rough water at that? First step, Jones's unit carries out multiple in-camera tests of practical water. This entailed everything from panes of rippled glass to torn bits of paper to sheets of cloth fixed to metal rods, animated one frame at a time to simulate wave movement. After an exhaustive series of explorations, the team came up with a basic look and behavior for the sea and brought in VFX supervisor Steve Emerson and his team to recreate the feel of the practical desks combined with the greater flexibility and nuance of CG simulation. So basically, they tested it out using the practical effects and then copied that stylized, because it's not like real-life water. They've they've created a movement and a, a behavior of water that's a lot more sort of stylized and like in keeping with the aesthetic of the film. Ah, So they haven't just like run the water plug-in or pressed the water button, which I assume is how all CG water is done.
1: Yeah, <laughs> apart from the water in Lego movie.
0: So in that instance, I think that is the biggest use of CG in the film. Right. I think for the rest of the film, digital elements lend more of a helping hand. But all of these incredibly elaborate setups were made really with like a combination of like paintings and, you know, very, very vast open studio spaces to create, you know, this incredible depth. There is a lot of green screen stuff in there, but I do think that composited together, all or most of the individual elements are handmade. So it's it's a pretty staggering feat.
1: That's good. I am I am really looking forward to seeing it. What I said earlier on, it looks like a film that has been made for for somebody who kind of meets that you know, what it is they're trying to go for. I really, really can't wait to get out of the house and, and see it.
0: And the the tone of the film is, I thought, very... Uh, I mean, it's what I like about Laika, as, as I said before about them sticking to their guns. Mm. They don't worry about coddling a, a younger audience or acquiescing overprotective parents. They put in some pretty uncompromising visuals and stuff, like the, the main villains, the sisters... His two aunts, basically, like they're like something from like a Japanese horror movie, right. and especially the way that they're introduced, like when you see them for the first time, it's like the twins in The Shining, like it's just real. Oh god! I'm sure that's going to give kids like some real nightmares. And inevitably, the more you see of them, the less scary they become. Even though it's the same visual, the more personality you get from them, like the less kind of threatening they are. But when you really don't know what their deal is. And then they just kind of appear in this very nightmarish way, you know, under moonlight and all of that. It's lovely stuff. Ugh. Within, I think, the first two minutes, like, the, the mother character is horribly injured in this way that you just sort of see, like, she just face plants this undersea rock. <laughs> it slices her face open. So, oh. especially because it's stop motion, you really feel the impact. Of course, it's not like a, an old-timey cartoon where everyone's fine in the next scene. You then sort of cut, forward and Kubo's now a teenager and she's still got this big mark on her face.
1: So she didn't have birds tweeting around her head or any of yeah. that kind of stuff.
0: She have to sort of shake it off, you know?
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back to the Acme
0: catalog. <laughs> and so I think then also there's a nice sort of moment early on, because then we, we sort of move forward and Kubo's older. And basically we learn that this woman and her son are not quite human. The woman is actually supernatural and has magical powers but he kind of has a, you know, a handful of these magic powers inherited. So he can, through his shamisen, I think is the instrument, bring origami figures to life, which I'm mm. sure you've seen some of these sequences. Yeah. Um, tell, and he tells these stories to enchant and entertain the local villagers. And there's a lovely sort of moment quite early on where one of his friends uh, in the village, this woman sort of appeals to him, like, try and make him a bit funnier. Just inject a bit of comedy here and there, just to break it up a bit. And he's sort of reluctant to. I thought that was quite a nice sort of reassurance, perhaps, to the audience that that was the intention of Leica with this film. Because mm. it does, it remains, it's not a complete downer, really. Tragic things happen, but they they all lead toward uplifting ends. And it is, I think, held aloft by enough moments of sort of humour, even to break up some of the more dramatic and intense scenes. Some of the battle sequences, for example, You'll get some lovely little visual moments. And, you know, I thought it was all very well balanced. It wasn't a 50 50 thing at all. It was definitely more of a dramatic film than a comedy film. But it was, that was enough, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it's lingered in my head a lot more than the studio's previous films, which isn't to say that there was anything wrong with them. But there was more, I think, with Box Trolls and Paranorman, I think it was definitely played more for the comedy and the fantasy goofiness. My like, Paranorman was quite directly satirical yeah. of a lot of, like, you know, B-movie tropes and things like that. I don't think I found *Caroline* particularly funny at all, but I don't think it was really meant to be. It was more meant to be that kind of, you know, fantasy enchantment Neil Gaiman universe. Yeah. And did that perfectly well.
1: And if people want to see these things continue, they need to get to the cinema. So I'm studying it. I've not seen it. I need to get to the bloody cinema if I want to see more stuff from Leica. You're a part of the problem. I am. I am. I thought it was the solution. We've
0: got to, we've got to turn you around and you will lead the revolution. <laughs> you know, maybe cinema isn't all. Maybe there will be life beyond. I mean, some films that are genuinely considered to be classics of cinema completely fing tanked hmm. at the time. Like, I think the Shawshank Redemption was a complete bomb.
1: Yeah. Well, even Pinocchio and stuff like that, you know, really early in Disney's career. They owed RKO so much money. The Shawshank Redemption, perfect example there. And this film, which is now considered a classic, an absolute classic, but it made like fifty pence at the box office.
0: That's hardly anything.
1: It's, it's <laughs> next to nothing.
0: Whatever happens in the sort of greater scheme of things, if you're not one of many people going to see this film, you're one of a privileged few, and it's everyone else's loss, frankly. Mm. It's a tremendous film, and I think that kids will really you know, get a kick out of it. I think that it's exactly the kind of film that you can very happily watch with your kids and probably find yourself taken along with it mm-hmm. in a way that maybe other family films don't.
1: I actually watched uh, The Box Trolls uh, a couple of weeks ago with my uh, three-year-old nephew, and for all of its kind of uh, ugliness, he really enjoyed it. He was glued to the screen. Because we leave glue hanging around everywhere.
0: That's so unsafe.
1: I know, I know. <sighs> um, but for people to imagine that these films aren't for all, it's I think that kind of tilts that balance on its head a little bit.
0: I think it's a thing where parents would be a bit more ill at ease with it mm. than, um, than you know, the kids. The kids would probably revel in it, not even little boys, but probably little girls as well. You know? Yeah, aesthetically things can be quite gross and ugly and grotesque and that's exactly what you you want if the mood strikes you hence you know like, I mean think of the success of stuff like fungus the bogeyman mm. or ren and Stimpy of course you know if Roald Dahl would very often indulge violent deaths yeah. horrible things
1: happening to people the way the twits ended scarred me for life and the way who explodes there's there's a, there's a kid story when I was a, when I was a kid I went to a uh, there's this, is like, kind of story time thing. I remember being, like, four or something. And we sat down, and this woman read a story to us all. And it was about this this bully who used to steal sweets from kids. And it was very Roald Dahl-esque. It wasn't a Roald Dahl book. And these kids created these sweets that made the bully swell and swell and swell until he exploded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like there's no kind of like and then he vanished. Da, da, da. He, he just exploded. And I remember thinking Jesus, they've just murdered him. <laughs> they've just got together and murdered him. That's horrific. And, but it reminded me of the end of the box trolls when Snatcher his his heart's torn, he must you must taste this this cheese. Mm-hmm. And then his demise you know, just just he ending is that if that ilk, that kind of macabre ilk. I watched my uh, when when the bit happened. I knew it was coming up, and I watched my nephew watching it. He didn't flinch, not at all. He was like, "So what? It's just exploded." <laughs> kids today are, are made of stronger stuff <laughs> than these bloody lily livered nineteen eighties kids.
0: I think me and your nephew would have gotten on quite well.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, you, you, Take me to see um, Wiener Dog or something like that.
0: <laughs> the stuff that would linger with me would, would always be sort of more conceptual, like they, or things that were kind of tapped into, like I guess more psychological stuff. Mm. So, like horribly violent things happening was always just kind of like I took that like slapstick, you know, a slightly more intense version of the coyote getting blown up by the TNT. Mm-hmm. But I remember there was stuff like uh, that operated on like, I think if there was more of a kind of cruel irony. Here's a little appeal to the squiggly listening audience, because I've never been able to find this. But I have this memory of something that really troubled me when I was, like, very young, four or five. It was just on TV, and I remember it had a very sort of quaint 2D illustrative style, and um, the only thing I remember is this. It's a a family or a couple, uh, the husband discovers a fairy uh, or or something that's very small, basically, a little small person, um, outside in the cold, and brings this fairy inside to the farmhouse, I guess, wherever it is. So the fairy's very grateful that you know she's out of the cold. He puts her down by the fire to warm up. And then a spark from the fire like flies out and immediately burns her to death, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> having been brought in from the cold. And that's all I remember from this, whatever it was, if it was a show, if it was a film, if it was a short film... Would have been, I guess, late 80s. So I don't know if that rings a bell with anyone. If any, maybe you animated the fairy game bird to death. Uh, give us a shout because I'd be curious to see that.
1: So it was, it was 2D.
0: 2D, very quaint style. So the kind of, I think it was that you didn't see something like that coming because Mm. of how cute the style and the setup was.
1: Where was it set? Was it modern day, like three bar fire or what, what was it?
0: It was like a farmhouse in a sort of wooded countryside. So it could have been any era really. Right. You know, it could have been like, you know, in the 80s or it could have been in like the 1800s. It was basically that kind of like universal, timeless quaintness. But, you know, in terms of when it was made, I would say late 80s probably. Unless it was made earlier. Um, maybe it was made like, you know, the 60s or the 70s and they just showed it. But no, that doesn't ring a bell with you at all?
1: No. But yeah. uh, I, I, I do applaud the idea of getting the uh, squiggly listeners to to figure it out instead of using Google. I think.
0: <laughs> I've, I've, I've Googled it. Maybe I, my Googling isn't up to speed.
1: Yeah, it would be nice if we can figure it out. If any of the listeners can help. I'm interested to see the film now because uh, I don't know where it is. So... It's going to be fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to somebody getting in touch and letting us know uh, about the film.
0: At any rate, back to Kubo and the Two Strings. Let's hear from the director of the film. This is uh, like a CEO, Travis Knight, and this was his first film that he directed. He's been involved, you know, quite heavily with all of them um, as a lead animator, and of course, he's you know oversees all sorts of like a business. So yeah, we chatted a little bit to him shortly before the film came out. Let's hear from Travis Knight. Obviously, you've been heavily involved in all the Leica films so far, but as, from what I can gather, this is your first time as a director, is that right?
2: That's right, yes.
0: Cool. Now, how? because it's not really making it easy for yourself in terms of the scale of this film. <laughs> it's the hugest one.
2: No. I did not take it easy on myself. Mm. You know, Kubo is by far the most ambitious thing that mm. we've ever done at Laika. Uh, we would never even attempted something of this scale, this size, this kind of this sweeping, big mm. fancy epic. It's something that you typically don't see in animation, specifically in stop-motion anim- animation. And for good reason, because mm. it turns out it's really hard. Uh, the you know the when you understand how a stop motion film was made, which is essentially the way we make films. Our studio is in Portland, Oregon, on the Pacific in the Pacific Northwest of America, and we have this. Big crummy warehouse where we have these these you know these wooden tabletops that you gussy up to try to make like a look like it's a real place, and you know you're shooting these things at small scale. I mean, our our hero Kubo, he's about you know nine nine and a half inches tall, and he's you know he's walking along in the set, and you want it to feel like a stop motion David Lean film, mm. and uh, it's it's kind of silly to, to think you could shoot something at that scale and make it feel big and sweeping. And yet, that was the story that we were telling. We knew that we wanted to tell a big fantasy. And to do that, you need scale, you need scope. And, uh, and so it really required every single department to come up with new ways of, of making, you know, making their art that it would, on the screen, it would feel like a big epic fantasy. And it was not easy, but uh, I'm really proud of the way it came together.
0: Hmm. Well, even without any sort of stereoscopic elements, like just to sort of look at it, uh, you can tell there's a huge amount of depth and these amazing sweeping landscapes, mm-hmm. even that some of them are just on screen for a couple of seconds. I mean, were they all like built like for purpose?
2: Yeah, I mean, our, our process is it's a big roiling gumbo of different techniques. Uh, we combine art, craft, science and technology. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's techniques that go back over 100 years. I mean, stop motion is effectively one of the first visual effects techniques that was ever developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, some of the things that we're doing on Kubo is the same way that Georges Méliès was doing when he was sending rockets to the moon. Mm. Uh, you know, you still have a, a set with lights and a, you know a puppet and a camera and an animator bringing these things to life a frame at a time. But we also use matte paintings, we use uh, digital set extensions, we shoot miniatures that we then you know put together in compositing. Mm. And so it's a lot of different techniques that you end up using to bring this thing to life in the best way. And we just you know early on in the process we get the, the entire team together and we start talking about. What's the best way to bring this thing to life visually, and so it's just a ton of different techniques that we use at the studio to make these things, uh, you know, really uh, spark on the screen. And uh, and but I think it's unusual the way we make films at Leica is really unlike anywhere else in the world, and it's because of all those different techniques converging.
0: Sure. I did see a name on the credits as well as one of the animators, and presumably in a different capacity than before. Yeah, um, what was that
2: sort of difference like? Directing myself was weird. <laughs> um, yeah, on the, on the previous films, uh, you know, I've overseen the films. I've been you know lead animator on the films, so doing a ton of animation. And on this film, I wanted to do the same thing. I still wanted to you know really get in the trenches and get my hands dirty and bring these puppets to life a frame at a time. Uh, but as an animator, what you need is time and as a director what you don't have is time so it required you know trying to find ways creative ways that i could actually still get in there and bring these things to life but uh but schedule the day so the the, you know, the production kept running because as, as a director I mean, you're at the nexus of every, every single decision. You're at the you know, absolute center of all the artistic and creative and technical decisions. And in order to keep the show running, you can't, you, know, you can't spend time out on the floor animating. So usually the way I would do it is at the beginning of the day, before anybody would show up, I'd go out and you know, crank out a handful of frames. They would start. I'd direct all day or you know, you know, work on overseeing the company. And then at the end of the day, when everyone left, I'd go out and crank out a few more <laughs> frames on my set. It was slow going, but um, it's always been a huge part of what I do is to, you know, to keep my hands directly involved in, in creating the art. And I think it goes to what we stand for like Leica is that we are really a community of artists, and we love creating this, these beautiful stories and, and, and bringing these projects to life with our hands. And, and I, I think you see that in every frame of Kubo. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Has that animation background, has that informed your approach as a director, sort of knowing what it's like to be in the trenches, so to speak? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think it, it has to. Uh, mm. I don't know any other way. Mm. <laughs> I've been an animator for pretty much my whole life as a you know, working professionally, I've been working animation for 20 years. And so it's just kind of part of my blood, it just infuses the way I think, the way I look at the world. And so I think it it probably can't help, I'm sure it absolutely kind of wove into my perspective on how we were making this movie. But it also, I think it it was a great experience because I was able to communicate with the animators in a way that probably their directors haven't typically done, Uh, you know, most of the other uh, directors who've who've worked at the studio they're, they're not professional animators they you know they come from different you know from storyboarding or they come from different aspects of, of the process so to be able to, to collaborate with the animators on the show with one of their own with someone that they've worked side by side in the trenches it was it was an incredibly rewarding experience we were able to talk about performance in a really meaningful way because we all do the same thing and and it was a, it was a great collaboration and I think because of that, I think some of the animation on this film is just absolutely exquisite. It's just extraordinary because we were all working from the same perspective.
0: A brief encounter there with Travis Knight, director of Cubo and the Two Strings. Get yourself to Cinema and check it out. And you can learn more at the official website, cubothemovie.com. Now, Steve, I believe you have some news before we uh, wrap things up.
1: So, yeah, it's been been a busy couple of weeks for me putting together the Manchester Animation Festival. And this Wednesday, uh, we'll be revealing the full programme. Uh, so, if anyone's interested in finding out what's going to be on at the festival this year, then uh, head on to the Manchester Animation Festival Facebook page, where we'll be announcing everything live from about six o'clock on Wednesday, the 21st of September. So, if you listen to this as it goes out, that's tonight. And if you're listening to this in the far future, then uh, go on the Facebook page, scroll down, find the live uh, video link, and re watch it. Tremendous.
0: And of course, the main website is ManchesterAnimationFestival.co.uk. In the meantime, however, Squiggly are at Encounters here in Bristol, hobnobbing with the filmmakers and special guests. We'll be putting up coverage throughout the event, so keep checking Squiggly for exclusive Q&As and features over the next little while, some podcast minisodes, I dare say, and uh, maybe even some videos. The visual selection for this year's edition is rock solid, so definitely get yourselves over to the watershed, check out the films, as well as the children's programs, the late lounge screenings always a personal highlight, plus special events put together by the likes of Nexus, Ardman, Random Acts, Breakthrough Films, and uh, Hugh Welchman will be doing a special presentation on the much-anticipated Loving Vincent, which looks amazing. That's at 1.30pm on Friday the 23rd. And the night before, we're also going to be joining forces with our good pals at Rumpus Animation for a special open-to-everyone get-together at Kongs of King Street, Thursday the 22nd. So check out the Squiggly Events page for more info on that one, and I hope to see you there. In the non-UK festival world, my latest film, Clementhrow, is still floating about the place. It's back on tour in Switzerland for short film nights. First stop is Geneva at the Cinema de Grutli on September 23rd, then on the 24th in Delimont at the Cinemont, with two screenings on the 30th at the Cinema Bel-Air in Eviden and the Cinema Aliquin in Sion, respectively. And all of those screenings kick off at 8pm. Visit NuitDuCourt.ch. that's N-U-I-T-D-U-C-O-U-R-T, ch, for more specifics. And for you Germans out there in podcast land, on Sunday, October 2nd, the film plays at Filmfest Eberswalde in Animation Films 1, which starts at 4pm. There's more info at filmfest-eberswalde.de. Some good news to end on, my book, Independent Animation, Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films, is finally out in the world. So thanks very much to all the lovely people who pre-ordered it, who'd be getting in touch to let me know it has indeed arrived and uh, said nice things about it. It does seem that people who ordered it through various online outlets are getting it sent pretty much directly now. So probably the best place to get it would be the publisher's website itself. You can search it out at crcpress.com or wherever you like to buy your books online. The retail date is listed as September 29th, so you may even catch a glimpse of it in stores in the near future. Mm. And to tide you over while you wait for it, of course, you can always visit squiggly.com for our regular glut of animation features, interviews, reviews, and such like. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Squiggly. And I'm at Ben L. Mitchell, and Steve is Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. Thank you for listening, and until next episode, happy animating.